the danger of AI is you're going to end up being a race to the bottom. I think there's an opportunity to play to a more infinite game of like, how do we actually augment what we already do to actually get to something even better? Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. In this podcast, we learn from amazing people how to think better and build better organizations in our massively accelerating world. We explore what's possible, how to augment ourselves, and ultimately who we can become. In addition to the podcast, we apply the insights from our guests to develop useful tools and resources. These include the Thought Weaver app for better thinking with AI, the Humans Plus AI community with a wonderful group of explorers and extensive learning resources, my AI-enhanced thinking and decision-making cohort course, corporate programs, and a lot more. So to find out about these or to access a whole host of free resources, our newsletter, and uh, much more, just go to amplifyingcognition.com. And if you like the episode, please subscribe and rate the podcast. That will help others to find it. Now to today's episode. In this episode, I talk with Kez Sampantar. Kez is the Managing Director at BCG Brighthouse, leading innovation and purpose. He's an award-winning innovator, technologist, game designer, and consultant to some of the world's largest organizations. He speaks extensively on technology, design thinking, innovation strategy, and behavioral change, and is author of the substack, The Centaurian. In this episode, we talk about centaurians and what the idea means, augmented intelligence, diegetic prototyping, unique human thinking, and many other topics are very closely aligned with this humans plus AI frame and how we can be more using AI. Stand by for a wonderful conversation with Kez Sampata. Kez, it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Ross. Thank you for inviting me. So tell me, Kez, what is a centurion? A centurion is somebody who uses AI to augment their the ability to think, the ability to work, the ability to engage with uh, the AI through you know, what I call augmented intelligence, and in a way that we are sort of being slowly evolving our, our brains now as we hit that next sort of stage of what I see as the next stage of evolution. I very much agree. <laughs> so... How did you come to get here? You know, what's your, what's, I mean, just in a nutshell, how did you come to uh, be focusing on this uh, very important topic? Long journey, like uh, many of us. So I actually started AI research 30 years ago. So I was doing uh, neural networks, genetic algorithms, parallel computation uh, as part of a sort of academic research. And then I lost funding and ended up going to a think tank ended up consulting, you know, starting a number of startups, um, you know, dove into neuroscience over the last 20 years. So really liked the fact that the 90s had led to the decade of the brain, uh, ended up developing sort of a behavioral design methodology called motivational design. Um, and then over the last sort of decades, you know, slowly actually getting back into AI and starting to use it, you know, obviously as machine learning started evolving, you know, data science started exploding. And then, you know, most recently, what I really loved when ChatGPT finally got to that stage was I realized that we were as close to what I've been envisioning for a long time. At the same time, 
the idea of AR, which I've been looking at for a decade now, and then with some hands-on exis- hands-on sort of experimentation with Vision Pro, and I realized that they solved a lot of the problems I'd I'd been identifying. So this idea of augmented reality meets augmented intelligence was where I thought of you know or, you know I've been waiting for a long time. So this is how I kind of got here. Though a lot of people when they well, at the moment, the real focus for people researching in AI seems to be saying, well, how do we make the AI better? And there's a relatively small number of people who think, say, well, how does the AI make the human better? So what is it about you that makes you uh, focus on that? At some level, it's like, um, I, re- I realized like computing went off in two directions very early on. Uh, so when it first started, you had the Marvin Minsky, John McCarthy going on AI. And honestly, when I was younger, that's where I thought, you know, I wanted to be like AI research. And I was very excited about sort of neural networks. Um, but what I slowly started realizing, and, you know, to understand how to create AI, I started studying neuroscience and human behavior. And as I sort of started growing up, and I realized that it was very important to focus on the humans. So, uh, you know, I've spent the last 20 years really on human-centered design, behavioral design, you know, how do you ensure the prosperity of humans going forward? You know, we're, we're a very unique species in a lot of ways. Um, and I realized that we're the first species in evolution who not only can, you know, has our int- intellect, intellect allows us to understand things, we're the first most empathetic organism which cares about not only ourselves, but the you know, other living systems and the universe at large. So at some level, it's like I wanted to make sure as we move forward that uh, you know, we augmented humans and brought them along because you know, keeping this arc of progression going. So I felt like to as as much as it's it's like there's a lot of people who work on the math and science of AI, which I love, but I wanted to focus on the harder piece, which I I thought was not getting covered enough. As much as I love user experience designers and people who are human-centered design, they don't go deep enough into understanding how the brain works, or they don't understand AI at a deep enough level to actually understand how to create the interfaces. So being at this unique intersection of deep AI plus deep human insights I thought I was in a very unique position to actually help in this sort of intersection. And how do you design this future interface? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm very much in favor of humans and the uh, potential, which was you know it's still far from expressed. Now I've got some tools to help it. So I actually started uh, in computing. My my career in computing went off in some other directions, and uh, actually got quite a lot into cognitive psychology, and then. Um, one point, I decided uh, I decided I should describe myself as a born again technologist, coming back to the technology because the tech, understanding the technology was in fact what we needed to uh, augment and connect and catalyze humans. Yes. So this the idea of centaur. I mean, of course, that's that's an individual concept, as in yeah, there's an individual centaur, but this could also be applied in organizations, and I, I presume that uh, working in uh, a think tank as you do, then that's uh, probably part of your uh, scope as well, thinking about organizations. So perhaps we might start with organizations, then come back to the individual. So how should organizational leaders be thinking about 
bringing this centaur into the organization or making it a central organization? One of the things which worried me, especially over the last year, is the way you know, large consulting companies and uh, large organizations and some certain CTOs were talking about Gen AI was they were talking about it very similarly to robot process automation. This idea of automating more and more of our work. Like we've been, you know, since the start of technology, we've been, you know, focused on automating things away. Um, you know, whether it's the loom, whether it's, you know, how we, you know, evolved agriculture, you know, how we created factories for manufacturing. It's it, It's been a long journey of, you know, turning human labor and, uh, you know, instead of using our muscles, being able to, you know, use technology to be able to do some of that physical labor. You know, over the last sort of 50, 60 years, we've been using technology uh, in the sense of IT to be able to help, you know, what I would say is sort of like uh, do do more cognitive work, right? So mostly it was low low sort of you know cognitive work, low level cognitive work, and we automated away a lot of those jobs, and we've done that. But at the same time, we've uh, increased and improved, you know, the kind of jobs which we evolved for everybody else. You know, at the start of my career, the idea of being a, a innovation consultant, a human centered designer, uh, even an AI, like was not really heard of, right? Except out of out of academia, and I wanted to focus on helping organizations, you know, be able to do something beyond just automating away. Because there's a lot of talk about this idea that you know we don't need to be we don't need humans anymore, right? You know we're we're basically heading for the equivalent of the pastures. In the same way horses were put out to pasture when we invented the car, we didn't need horses anymore. The idea is as soon as the AI can beat a human at something, eventually it's going to get to a point where it can do nearly every cognitive test better than a human. At which point, why do we need humans? But I look at it differently, like. It's not like when we invented the car, we got rid of running or sprinting. Usain Bolt still runs and doesn't compete against Ferrari. You know, like even chess, right? You know, Kasparov lost to Deep Blue nearly 26 years ago. And it's still Magnus Carlsen who grew up in the era where AI had already beaten humans, like learned from, you know, technology like chess base and using some of the stuff which AI driven like stockfish and to actually improve the game to the point like he is, you know, a, a better player because of using technology. This idea of organizations augmenting their employees, because I believe that will help us get to further. So instead of looking at just automating and just getting rid of tasks, I'm really interested in what I saw with large language models was it impacted and could augment, you know, high-level thinking tasks, you know, experts. And, you know, it's like, you know, we, you know, looking at an example at the insurance industry, it's like, you know, somebody's an underwriter. Do we just, like, get rid of all that expertise that they have? Or do we find a way of augmenting them to be able to do things they couldn't do before? And that's where I'm sort of, like, moving towards. So I have this model of, you know, autopilot, co-pilot, pilot, where like, what are, like, there's certain things we want to augment away, you know, automate away, 
Other things we want to augment, so we want to be able to think more broadly. And then lastly, it's like, what are the things we could never do before? And what can we actually enable? So if we're looking at competitive advantage, we're looking at how organizations grow and compete and stay relevant. The danger of AI is you're going to end up being, you know, a race to the bottom. Like at some level, like, you know, how do we get to cheaper, faster, better of cognitive, you know, the AI systems which are out there? I think there's an opportunity to play to a more infinite game of like, how do we actually augment what we already do to actually get to something even better? Well, that's certainly very aligned with what I, how I communicate with, you know, boards and executive teams is this idea, all right, no, no, this is not about replacing, it's not about getting rid of people that's around and saying, how can we now use all the people you've got to be able to create something uh, far more than you could before? But so what is your response? What response do you get from your clients or from you know, executives or leaders? And how do you communicate with them in a way that helps shift their thinking on this? So one of the ways we've been trying to explain things to them, you know, we bring data and research. You know, I think you're familiar with the BCG, Water, and H. Harvard research, right, on creativity, where it showed that that having Gen AI actually got a 40% uptick in the quality of ideas, especially on the creative task. And, you know, that's been sort of touted quite a lot. What they don't talk about as much is the flip side of that same research, which was there was a 41% drop in diversity of ideas. So the first thing I tell to executives when I talk to them is, look, you could you know, jump on this, get rid of, you know, whatever cost you're paying to a marketing agency, your creative, your innovators, and outsource this and go, hey, I can just have an intern using Gen AI to be able to create some of these ideas. But if you believe that innovation and creativity are the only thing which helps you differentiate in the marketplace and helps you create a competitive edge, which is the whole essence of innovation to drive growth, you should be terrified that you are now playing on platforms held by a handful of tech giants where everyone's going to have access to this. This isn't a competitive edge anymore. So how do you augment with humans and bring what I call the, you know, the personal LLMs, the expertise that humans bring, the diversity of thought that they bring together to be able to get to something which is an and, which is so much more than you know, uh, an either or, right? You, you have human plus machine, I think is human and machine. I can't remember how you frame it, but that's the, that plus, that and is the most important thing because I think that's how you get to competitive advantage. So that's one part of the conversation. The second part is we create diegetic prototypes to help organizations understand how competitive advantage plays out. So we started with something in the media industry where we actually showed them, right, you know, hey, look, you've just lived through the streaming wars. You know, I was talking to media executives, you know, 15 years ago about Netflix and streaming and the fact that their value chain of distribution was getting getting disrupted and they should be very wary of giving their IP to, you know, a company like Netflix. They just thought of it as an extra channel to make some money on their IP. You know, roll forward five, six years, and that everyone, every one of them is scrambling to create a streaming platform. So we showed them that Gen AI, as it is, you know, as of last year, you know, was already lowering the cost of production. 
production used to be their, their sort of, what I call their moats, right? This was their competitive advantage. This was like, you need a lots of money to do high-end blockbuster movies like the MCUs. And that's what kept everybody else out. You just load the cost of your most expensive set to the point at the same time, you've got the rise of social media and YouTube and you know Roblox. And suddenly this younger generation is already consuming content which you don't control. And now this technology comes along, which allows anybody to be able to create. Like, you should be worried about the teenager in her bedroom creating the next you know, Game of Thrones series, you know, moment by moment uh, for her friends, and then you know, creating a franchise and a universe far bigger than the MCU. Like, how do you find that? How do you tap into that as opposed to like trying to lock people out or sue people for using content? Like, we should embrace the fact that we're moving into this new world. So at some level, we use diegetic prototypes to really hammer home. What is your competitive advantage going to look like? We use their business models and basically show them how it's going to get disrupted using sort of these sort of technologies and uh, an adjacent possible library, which we developed. So a couple of follow-up questions. The first one is use the word diegetic a couple of times. Could you please explain that? Oh, yes. Um, so diegetic prototyping is, you know, it's like Bruce Dillon called it sort of a design fictions. So these are sort of like a very intentional use of a design to be able to explain how something will really be used in the future. So movies have been doing this for a long time. So, you know, Minority Report, all the technologies which are supposed to be 50 years out was sort of, you know, imagined and all of them became available within the next decade. They were commercially available products. So one of the things I realized as an innovator is like, instead of going MVP where you just create the minimal viable product, what a diegetic or design fiction prototype is, let somebody imagine exactly how this is going to be you know, used, how it's actually going to implement and tie together with their business models and business plans and how does competitive advantage work out, right? So it is like the same thing as like, let's take Star Trek or let's take the MCU, but then let's tie to what the implications are for your business. So we bring this idea of these design fictions to life because we find that that gets the idea across so much better. Like science fiction writers have been, you know, inspiring scientists and technologists and now businesses and now having a methodology to be able to develop that is one of the things where we could help organizations really understand the implications. Taking a very quick break, this podcast is just one facet of our work to amplify human cognition. If you're interested in thinking better in a world of overload, using AI to augment yourself, finding like-minded thinkers or improving your organization's performance, just go to amplifyingcognition.com. We'll find a wealth of free resources and useful tools. Now, back to the show. And so the other thing is competitive advantage, which we've sort of raised a few times. And so, I mean, absolutely right. If, you know, if everyone's using the same LLMs, there's no competitive advantage. So if you use humans plus AI better, that is a competitive advantage, but what's the nub of that? So how, what is that future competitive advantage of a, call it a center organization? What does that look like? Where does the competitive advantage reside and sustained? So, you know, it changes from industry to industry, but sort of more talking about it generally, right? So if we talk about, you know, basically where to play, 
how to win. So where to play is your competitive sort of field. Like where, where are you going to actually take? So this is where innovation comes in. So not only new business models, new products, new services, you know, even down to creativity and advertising and how do you, how do you break through the noise? So at some level to be able to stand out and differentiate, you need to have an edge over everybody else. So your innovation engine has to be powered in a way which is going to get to uniqueness. Because as we, as I sort of unpacked a little bit in one of my um, in a Centurion articles was this idea that, you know, the challenge of an LLM is associative thinking. Associative thinking and that stochastic process, which actually works, actually bubble these things up. So when you look at the sort of semantic space of ideas, which an LLM, you know, you know basically uses, it hones in on, you know, things which are associative and gets to sort of slightly better than average ideas. That's a challenge when, you need to be at the higher end, especially as you think about innovation. So this is where sort of somebody who has a broader range of knowledge, you know, their own personal LLM, together with AI, can push the boundaries of how you use a large language model to actually explore parts of that semantic space, which is not as easy to get to. This isn't just standard prompt engineering. This isn't just chain of thought. This is actually understanding how our brains come up with ideas. How do you actually explore the knowledge and idea space? And then understanding how to use a technology like AI to be able to get there. So that's sort of like, you know, where to play, how to get competitive advantage, how to build competitive products and systems. On the operating model side, it's like, how do you actually look at this and go, yeah, there are things I have to automate. But there is also this idea of like, how do I find a different way, a different sort of operating model? So if we go back 100 years ago, when we moved from, you know, steam power to electricity, all people did was, you know, in a factory where the steam used to come in for a central shaft, which ran everything, they plugged in electricity and not steam. And it took another 40 years before somebody realized electricity doesn't have to be located at just a central source. It can be distributed. So by the time we get to assembly lines and the distribution of electricity, you've got a new operating model uh, which actually takes advantage of the technology. I feel like similar sort of things have to happen in the operating model. It took us 20 years to actually walk through the internet and the advantage that computers and internet came together to create a platform business model. The companies like Amazon, Alibaba, all of these companies at some level use this very different kind of business model. So if we thought about mass production and the 20th century as economies of scale, what the internet provided was a business model which was economies of scale through this idea of network effects. So that's what drives the platform business model. But that took a long time to get that to the point. Bezos took 13 years to get there. Alibaba launched with that sort of business model. You know, Jobs fought it all the way and eventually fell back into creating an app store when he didn't really want to have a, you know, an open system, an open platform. And, you know, Google kind of like stumbled into it as well, didn't really understand what they had. But today we understand how platform business models work, how competitive advantage works in that world. I think AI is going to drive a similar kind of re remodeling of operating model when we truly understand how that's going to change how business is done. So in which case the competitive reside, uh, advantage resides being able to adopt that operating model of you know, humans plus AI and the structures and what that implies, but also being able to develop the skills and enabling culture 
of the individuals in the organization so that they can use those tools effectively to augment themselves individually in an organization. I mean, one of the things you asked at the start, Ross, and I'll try and get to that is, you know, to be a centurion, to be a centurion organization, it's not as easy as you think in the sense like we've seen, you know, we've worked with a lot of organizations over the last year, and a lot of them, even the ones who are using generative AI, are not really changing how they work. To the point they're outsourcing thinking to the tool, right? Oh, like I've, I've heard the concept like, oh, it replaces the, the fear most people fear of the blank page. Like that's the wrong thing to use. Like it isn't prompt first, it isn't AI first, it's actually think first before you get there because that's the uniqueness you can bring to the tool. So as I've been looking at this, going back into neuroscience and cognitive science of understanding how intelligence and how we think, it changes how you would actually use the tool. You need to understand kind of like how LLM works, how AI works, and what it does well, and what its weaknesses are. And then you have to understand how a human thinks. And I'm trying to bring those pieces together. And it's not the natural. Like, you know, people are talking about Copilot, GitHub, Copilot for programming. I've been a programmer since I was 11 years old. Uh, the reality of I have to change so many of my programming habits to be able to use this and I can already start sensing that it's changing how I'm thinking about programming. And that's just one sort of cognitive task. That's why I've been sort of really breaking down something like chess, because that's easy for people to understand. And the idea that, you know, this AI is going to change how we might sort of think, because chess is this sort of very visual way for your thoughts in an open game where you can actually see where every strategy and thought's going at some level. But we don't get to see the unconscious. And that's the bit I've been trying to unpack a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm absolutely, very, you know, very, pretty much coming back, going back to my uh, cognitive psychology as well is, is this way of how do we marry these things well. All right. So for the next little while, I just want to get as practical as possible. All right. You're advising somebody how to be a centaur. What do, should they do? F first step is learn what makes you unique as a human, right? So I, the best thing I advise people today totally, is totally. Read, read broadly because your uniqueness is going to come from that corpus of information your brain has, you know, trained on. So because that's what's going to add new information, because if you're trying to get to the edges of that semantic space, you're not going to get there unless you've got a broad and unique set of ideas which you can bring. So desperate reading is going to be the order of the day. Yes, many of us are reading paper after paper after trying to understand AI, but at the same time, go broad, find the things which are interesting. So like training your personal LM for us, that's sort of what the, you know, Epstein calls range, right? There's a broad knowledge base which you have to get to. That's what's going to help you personally personally, both in your career and your jobs and how to engage. Next step is to understand how do, you, how do you think? How do you create? What is creativity in the brain? To understand how that process works. How does incubation work? How does community play work? Some of these things which are really pushing the boundary of creativity to be able to understand like that's what I need to bring and bring into it. Then it's like bringing, understanding frameworks and understanding the, the frameworks which underlie our thinking to be able to understand how to drive better framework design thinking, better systems thinking into the cognitive tools that we use. So those are the three steps which I've been sort of helping 
you know, organizations and then individuals to be able to really think through when they look at a process, you know, it isn't just workflow and process, it's thought flow. And thought flow comes down to both conscious and unconscious processing. And how do you actually do that? So those are some of the pieces where I'm helping organizations try and think through this. Yeah, it's, it's you know, everything you say is very, very aligned with uh, my work. And just one thing to pull, pull up and, uh, you know, I'd like to dig into is you're talking about the frameworks. And so the second chapter of my book, Thriving and Overload, was framing. You know, what are, what are the frameworks within which we build our knowledge? So I'd love to just hear more about the frameworks in our thinking that support us becoming better centaurs. So some work by Stanislas uh, Dehane has been mapping out sort of core, uh, sort of cognitive sort of structures in our brain, which are the core frameworks of our how we think. So one is sort of this idea, they call it the number line, but it's also used to understand time. So where we can look at two things, uh, quantities, and be able to look at what is more and what is less. So that sort of timeline ability is embedded in our brain. Another piece is there's a tree-like structure. So there's sort of decision frameworks. So that's why trees work, right? At some level, even the, uh, the classic consultants two by two is a small little glimpse into tree-like thinking, but visualized in a different way. Then you throw in the last sort of last sort of piece, which is our brains are, you know, are, are literally evolved. Our neocortex is evolved from a mapping system which uh, early mammals used to have, or even other creatures, but this idea of placing grid cells. So it's best to sort of, um, we mapped out the physical world and we could map it. So, you know, whether you're a small mammal, like, or a rat running through a maze, they've seen it in dreamlike sequences where they can actually see the hexagonal grid and how the maze, how the rat moved through the maze in that sort of place and grid cell sort of way. We've got that embedded in our brain. What we did when we evolved in neocortex, and this goes into Jeff Hawking's work on, you know, Thousand Brains, is we turned that into like thousands of these columns, which have at their heart this sort of mapping structure. So now we map information in this sort of uh, sort of place and grid cells, but through abstract space. So understanding those three allows you to look at all the different frameworks we've ever created and be able to actually understand how we can understand information. Then the other side of frameworks is the work which Dave Gray's doing, which is more that metaphors. And that sort of sits in this idea of visual metaphors, which allow us to think about things in different ways and, you know, framing ideas. And I always push my teams to go, what's the metaphor this reminds you of? How do you think about this in a different way? Is this like, you know, you know, baseball? Is this like a, a very different kind of, you know, organization, franchise model, whatever it is? Then the last one is, you know, the idea of mental models, um, which uh, the mental lattice of information, which, um, you know, Charlie Munger talked about. And these are sort of these mental models where we can understand core ideas from vast knowledge and be able to use that as a sort of framing device to be able to look and understand something else. So at, at some level, you know, the best ideas come from understanding a core pattern or a mental model from one domain and be able to take it into another domain and go, what happens if we map this sort of core pattern to it? So those three ideas of frameworks is what I what I do in my framework building course to be able to teach people how to think and be able to solve in this sort of augmented world and to be able to then map it to how do you use AI. 
Fantastic. Yeah, no, these are not the sort of things that uh, most people are focusing on, but are extraordinarily valuable. We need to understand our cognitive structures in order to enhance our cognition. And uh, But when we do that, when we are, uh, you know, I, I think of it in terms of our humans plus AI thinking workflows, but part of that is, you know, you do need to have the cognitive structures of the human in place in order to be able to understand where the AI can best complement it. I have one more thing to add, which is I mentioned AR at the start, right? And the reason I'm excited about spatial computing is actually something, you know, um, Andy Clark has been talking about this idea of extended mind. So there's a, we have this really amazing capability where we can think outside our heads. So as soon as we started scratching in the dirt, cave paintings, to all the way to writing, to mural, like we can think outside our heads. We can extend what is a limited working memory size, but by putting things out in front of us. Like I always say, like mathematicians are the heaviest users of blackboards and whiteboards because they work in this really abstract, complex space of ideas where they have to keep so many things in mind. So we've been extending through technology, you know, our working memory and extending that part of our conscious thinking. What I've been looking at is how do we actually also extend our unconscious thinking? So bring those two aspects. So all my work into understanding how the unconscious works, how incubation works, how do you tap into like we process 50 bits of information consciously every second, five zero and 11 million bits unconsciously. How do you make sense of that? So I've been developing a program which actually allows you to take that 11 million bits of information, actually structure it in a sort of process which involves incubation, rapid incubation, and sort of question storming, which I've been doing for years. But then taking that and being able to create sort of these interfaces in a spatial world, spatial computing world, where we can actually take where user experience needs to go. Look, AR is not going to be about a bunch of floating rectangles. Unfortunately, and much to the chagrin of every UX designer who seems to be doing that at the moment, that's like the same thing, skeuomorphism at scale, right? We are going to create very different interfaces to be able to uh, access and think, extend our conscious brains and extend our unconscious brains to be able to think more in an augmented space. I love it. Uh, I can't remember how long ago it was, nine years ago or something, I set up a company called Multidimension Corp, which actually got sold off very very early stage before we sort of got very far. But I mean, it was basically exactly that concept. You know, we mm. are thinking multiple dimensions and if we can interface with cognition, you know, our cognition in multiple dimensions, then that's, uh, could be the way of the future. But it's, it's, yeah. it's actually something I've, I literally in my, uh, first book in the year 2000, I wrote about, um, you know, essentially spatial interfaces to thinking and we've just but so little it just continues to stagger me so uh, yes as as you suggest with the vision pro and whatever uh, you know people's really starting to get onto it hopefully we'll start to get some good uh spatial you know cognitive uh interfaces so yep. you have a sub stack amongst other things so where can people find that and uh, about uh, your work yeah, so I've got a Substack uh, called uh, Centaurian, which I release an article every week on Mondays. So the fourth one dropped uh, today. Um, we also do a Friday uh, LinkedIn Live, which is a, a tectonic, where we actually unpack the what's happening in AI, 
well, my weekly Centurion article and basically just, you know, share some of our thinking. Like I, I'm trying to think in public as I get out there, you know, as, as most of my sort of innovations and things I've developed over the, you know, three decades have normally been inside organizations and they get formed before they ever get out there. I'm trying to do it all in public so we can, you know, I can interact with people like yourself who've been thinking very similar things. And because that's the fastest way we're going to get these ideas out there. So, you know, I'm trying to do all my thinking in public at the moment. Fantastic. And thank you for that. Uh, this is, this is, I really believe this topic, this theme is just about the most important thing we, we uh, can possibly work on. So thanks for all your work. Thanks for sharing everything you're doing. It's, uh, it's moving us forward. Yeah, you too. You too, Ross. I love following your, your articles and your thinking. And I think I, I came across your article on, you know, I think it was Minotaurs and uh, Centaurs and, you know, and, uh, you know, engaged with it a little bit and uh, realized that you were a, a kindred spirit uh, thinking through this and probably been doing this a lot longer than I have. So thank you. We'll be, uh, we'll be talking more, no doubt. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want to dive deeper, access free downloads in our newsletter and discover useful tools, go to amplifyingcognition.com. Did you enjoy this episode? Please support us by taking 30 seconds to give us a rating or a one-sentence review. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.